Hello and welcome to the Renaissance, episode 29, A Renaissance Nightmare. Welcome to the Renaissance. I'm your host, Dennis Berg. So no, this is not a figment of your imagination, and you are in fact hearing a brand new episode of the Renaissance podcast. Back in 2017, when we wrapped up episode 28, I had every intention of completing the podcast series all the way to the Venetian Renaissance. Unfortunately, life has a way of changing plans. So here we are, three years later, and we're finally returning. Since episode 28 in 2017, I've contemplated reviving the podcast several times, um, but trying to balance responsibilities of a career, my child, and still maintaining a painting schedule, it became difficult. So everything was pushed to the side, and one year becomes two, and eventually three, and here we are. But you guys didn't forget, and I appreciate all the responses I've gotten from listeners and fans, all the emails, I've read them. I've got many people who track me down on Facebook and Instagram too, so I appreciate you guys. So you're the reason why I'm bringing it back now. Decide we need to finish this journey we started way back in 2015. We only have a handful of episodes left, and I would like to see it completed. So we will be embarking on this final leg of our journey to the end of the Renaissance. So I'm not quite sure what schedule I'm going to be able to stick to just yet, Um, We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, I'm still drawing and painting, so I have to find balance for those. But if you'd like to see what I've been up to, be sure to check out my website, DennisBird.com, or you can visit my art page on Instagram, at DennisBirdArt, and you can see everything that I've been doing there. You can also sign up for a virtual mentorship if you're interested in learning how to draw and understand the uh, fundamental elements of art. uh, I would love to be able to help you with that. Of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Instagram, and it's at therenaissancepodcast.com. Okay, with all of that out of the way, let's talk about where the podcast will proceed from here. So when we left off with Jan van Eyck, we had just started the Northern Renaissance. Before that, we'd covered much of the early Italian Renaissance in Florence through to the High Renaissance in Florence and Rome. Originally, I'd planned 12 more episodes. That's probably not realistic. So I'm going to cut things down a little bit, and it means we may miss some artists, and I know that's disappointing for some, but I will do my best to cover all of the high points, and maybe we can do a supplemental at some point to cover some of these other artists. So my goal is to finish the podcast and leave it in a form that feels complete and satisfying and not hanging on episode 28. So after we wrap up things with the Northern Renaissance, We're going to head back to Italy to the Venetian Renaissance, and this is a period I've been looking forward to. Artists like Titian and Veronese. Venice, because of its location and its connections with the Byzantine Empire, had its own unique flavor of the Renaissance, Um, and it's going to influence European art through the next century with the Baroque artist. So from Venice, we will follow those artists right into Mannerism, and then we will wrap things up with El Greco. Once we finish with El Greco, 
I think we can close the Renaissance and we can call it complete. After him, art history moves on to a whole new phase of art known as the Baroque period. So with all of that, let's get started. In this episode, we're going to look at two artists, one Flemish and one Dutch, who paint a similar apocalyptic world despite being separated by a generation. This episode is going to be almost like a mini art history blast. Unfortunately, I'm unable to give you a full detailed account of Hieronymus Bosch or Peter Bruegel. We lack the sort of biographical accounts that we have with Vasari, and despite his embellishments and inaccuracies, it does give you a greater appreciation of his work. Hieronymus Bosch and Peter Bruegel, the elder, have been giving the world nightmares for almost 500 years. They would be tremendously popular in Northern Europe, even throughout the Protestant Reformation, when many religious paintings were being destroyed. Their work would even influence later Surrealist painters, as well as the founder of Kitsch, the contemporary Norwegian artist Odd Nerdrum. And I think given what we are experiencing today with COVID-19, we're likely to see even more references to Boss and Bruegel. So let's begin what we do know about the early life and training of Hieronymus Boss. Okay, that's about it. There's not much to go on, and just like our previous Northern Renaissance artist, we have very few biographies. We do know where he was born, if nothing else, and that's the town of Hertogenbosch. And I am really trying with the Dutch pronunciations, and I know from past listeners I've mangled some Italian, so please bear with me and my Georgia accent. But I did look this up in the hopes of getting a proper Dutch pronunciation. The town of Hertogenbosch is where he would eventually take his name sometime in the 1450s. Though he did often sign his name Van Aachen, which means from Aachen, and that's the town where it's most likely that his family comes from. We know little else of him or his family, and nothing of his training. His grandfather and his father were artists, so it's likely he received training at home. Nothing else is known, and we don't have a clear idea of his father or grandfather's work, because nothing of their painting has survived. The past few episodes have really illustrated the debt we owe to Vasari. Even though his work contains errors, we are able to piece together aspects of the artist's lives and give us some glimpse into their background. With the early Northern Renaissance, and even today, there's a lack of scholarly work in English when compared to that of the Italian Renaissance. Of course, there's a reason for this lack of evidence. As we discussed previously, the Netherlands was in the middle of the Hundred Years' War and constant strife between various competing states. This makes record-keeping difficult, if not impossible. Not to mention numerous wars that follow, including both world wars which cross through Belgium and the Netherlands. Much that might have been discovered has already been destroyed, and there's only seven works that we can ascribe to Boss, and even among those, there's debate among scholars. We will take a look at his most famous piece, one that we can confidently identify as a work of Hieronymus Boss, and that's the Garden of Earthly Delights. Boss's work often eludes modern scholars. He's been characterized as a madman, a mystic, a scholar, and a social commentator. With so little to go on, the art historian can take their pick. Much of what he draws on for his work has its basis in the fantastic imagery of the Middle Ages. 
In the Garden of Earthly Delights, painted between 1505 and 1515, interpretation is sometimes difficult, and the title itself is misleading. 19th century art historians believe Boss was depicting a heretical interpretation of the fall of man and even glorifying sin. They had an obsession with the sexual and erotic imagery in his work. And remember, these are the Victorians who saw sex everywhere. So more likely, their interpretation has more to do with their own time than it does with Boss's work. Most 20th century art historians reject this idea entirely. They see Boss as conforming to the orthodox beliefs of his day. The three-panel work depicts the creation of Adam and Eve and man's fall from grace into sin. In the first panel, we see the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and the Fountain of Life. In the far right panel, Boss depicts hell and the tormented souls who dwell there. Earth exists between paradise and hell. The piece draws its name from the center panel. The garden represents all of life's pleasures, and mankind is devoted to pursuing these. Each of the seven deadly sins are represented, but most prominently is the sin of lust. As the center panel is full of nude figures frolicking throughout the garden, even what appear to be multiple groupings and compromised positions in tree trunks and other structures. And even though sex is prominent throughout the center panel, we mustn't forget the games. It's these minor distractions that divert humans from a life of piety. We have writers playing games illustrating the dangers of these pursuits. The flowers and the sweet fruits represent the fleeting nature of pleasure here on earth. And we are reminded that all of Earth's pleasures are transient. In the upper portion of the center panel, we have beaker-shaped alembics. These are used in alchemy in an attempt to turn common metal into gold. Perhaps this is meant to symbolize the unity of man and woman in marriage as a reflection of the image of God. But it may also allude to the process of salvation through Christ by bringing together unlikely elements. In the final panel, we see the results of man's folly, damnation. Boss gives us fantastic images of monsters and otherworldly creatures who tortured the damned for their sinfulness on earth. The gruesome and grotesque methods of torture parallel what we saw in the center panel. We are presented with strange figures that morph from human into some sort of strange vessel or tree-like structures. Many draw parallels between these depictions and those of the Spanish surrealist Salvador Dali. Dali was, in fact, inspired by Boss, but he pulls his fantastic creatures from European folklore and biblical tradition rather than the subconscious. When the two outside panels of the triptych are closed, we see an image of the creation of the heavens and the earth, as told by the Genesis narrative. This fully encapsulates the theological narrative of the triptych. As far as the painting itself, we have no documentation of who commissioned it. But the painting would end up in the palace of Hendrik III of Nassau, Breda, in Brussels, by 1517, only a year after Hieronymus Bosch's death. So how he came into possession of the work is a mystery. Possibly he inherited from his uncle Egelbrecht II, or he may have commissioned the large work himself. Upon his death, it would then pass to William of Orange, but was soon confiscated by the Duke of Alba, and upon his death, went to the collection of Philip II of Spain in 1591. This is why if you wish to see this painting in person, you must visit the Prado. 
Boss would pass away with little fanfare. We only know of his death due to a reference in the account books of the Brotherhood of Our Lady of a funeral mass held for him on August 9, 1516. But his influence would be far-reaching. After his death, many of his works would be confiscated by the Spanish Habsburgs and then carted off to Spain. His sketchy style and impostos, thick passages of paint, would inspire later artists such as Rembrandt. Even 20th century artists like Dolly would take inspiration from his work. Our next artist was directly inspired by Boss, and that's Peter Bruegel. Peter Bruegel is much like Boss, and we have very little information about him. Art historians believe he was born near Breda, but exactly where is unknown, sometime in the 1520s. This is based on two biographical accounts from the 16th and early 17th centuries. The 17th century biographer Carol van Mander places Bruegel in the workshop of Antwerp painter Peter Koek. Bruegel would marry his daughter Maria in 1563, and her father would have his own role to play in the Northern Renaissance. Koek von Elst spoke multiple languages and translated the work of Vitruvius into Flemish. It would become the first Italian Renaissance work to be translated into Dutch or Flemish. It also appears that Koek was familiar with the work of Raphael through some of his own paintings. This would position him as the forefront of the Flemish Renaissance and make an ideal workshop for Bruegel to become acquainted with the humanist ideas from Italy. Other than that, we have little else on Bruegel's early life or his training. Thankfully, his career is slightly better documented than his early years. Once Bruegel was made a master painter in the Guild of St. Luke's, he would travel to Rome in 1552. While in Rome, he would study the work of Michelangelo in the Vatican and the Sistine Ceiling. He would adopt some of Michelangelo's technique into his own work, combining it with the subject matter inspired by Boss. Upon returning to Flanders, Bruegel would set up his own workshop in Antwerp, painting scenes of contemporary social and religious conditions. His market would soon include local scholars and government officials, including Cardinal Granville, the chief minister for the Habsburgs in Flanders. He would leave Antwerp for Belgium in 1563. It's possible that it was to be near government officials who were purchasing his work, even though Antwerp was the center of the art market in Flanders. Another account by the historian Van Mander states that Bruegel's mother-in-law requested that he move to keep him away from a servant girl in Antwerp. Bruegel rose to prominence at the height of the Protestant Reformation. The Netherlands was an area of constant turmoil between religious factions. Even though Bruegel remained a Catholic within the Habsburg-controlled part of the Spanish Netherlands, the effect of the Protestant Reformation was still felt. The demand for religious art and decoration for churches ceased to be the main income for artists on both Catholic and Protestant sides of the Netherlands. Bruegel would paint many portraits, like other artists, but he came up with creative solutions for religious devotional pieces that could appeal to both Catholic and Protestant patrons. In the ever-shifting tide of denominational affiliation, this is something many artists would do to protect their art and their careers. Gone were the days of Jan van Eyck's altarpieces. Bruegel would go on to paint three versions of the Tower of Babel from the Genesis narrative. Today we only have two. The one he painted while in Rome has been lost. 
The remaining two are labeled the Great Tower in Vienna and the Little Tower in Rotterdam. Likely you'll have seen both of these paintings before, even if you're unfamiliar with the artist. Both works were completed around 1563 and have a similar composition. However, the Great Version in Vienna is much larger, but the tower itself is smaller in proportion to the figures. This version also contains a group of figures in the left foreground. Most historians believe this is the figure of Nimrod. So what's the significance of this story in Northern Europe? Well, if you look at the paintings, you might notice something familiar. The towers resemble the Colosseum. And the Colosseum represented Rome's hubris, just as the tower represented the hubris of Babylon. God destroyed the tower, just as he destroyed the Colosseum, representing the futility of man's ambitions. This piece could also appeal to Bruegel's Protestant clients, who might see the Colosseum as a representation of the Roman Catholic Church. In the minds of many Protestants in Northern Europe, the Church and pagan Rome were one and the same. Despite Bruegel's Catholicism, this work could fit well within the new aesthetic of the Protestant Reformation. Bruegel's painting of the procession to Calvary, however, probably has as much to do with Flanders as it does with the imagery of Jesus carrying the cross to Golgotha. He even painted himself among the spectators hidden in the middle ground. The focus seems to be on the weeping and the mourning of the three Marys in the lower right corner, and he uses the bright red coats of the guards to lead the viewer almost through a spiral towards the background of the piece, the hill of Golgotha, where the crucifixion is going to take place. The entire scene seems to reflect the chaotic situation in Flanders during this time, with spectators heading to watch Christ's execution dressed in contemporary Flemish fashion. The landscape is dotted with corpses and the remnants of executions, not unlike Northern Europe during the Reformation. Bruegel would go on to paint a 12-part series representing each month of the year. We're going to look just at the return of the Hunters, also known as the Hunters in the Snow. This piece was most likely meant to represent January, and it was probably its title, and is considered one of the most influential landscape paintings in Northern Europe. It would secure Bruegel's reputation as a landscape painter. The painting depicts a group of hunters returning with their dogs. In the village below, the people are skating on the ice, but the warm colors of the houses and the figures are offset by the cool blues and the icy greens of the landscape showing the harshness of winter. The hunters are entering from the left of the frame, and this shows us the beginning of the new year. Like most landscape painting of the day, Bruegel's work almost always contains some sort of religious meaning. In this case, it's meant to remind us that man is powerless in the face of nature and at the mercy of the seasons. Therefore, we must rely on our faith in God to find order and comfort in such a harsh world. Of the original 12 paintings, only five are known to exist today, with the return of the hunters or the hunters in the snow being the most prominent. And each one would have had its own moral somehow attached each month of the year. In 1563, Bruegel would marry Mikan Koek. This is the daughter of his master, Peter Koek. The story by Van Mander states that her mother was behind Bruegel's move to Brussels in the hopes to end a flirtation he was having with the servant. 
Despite this, Mikan and Bruegel seem to have had a very successful marriage after their move. Bruegel would have two sons with Mikan, Peter the Younger and Jan. Peter the Elder would die while his sons were young in 1569 and therefore would be unable to train him. Both would become famous painters in their own right. Jan would collaborate with Peter Paul Rubens on several works, including The Allegory of Sight. And Peter the Younger would spend much of his career making copies of his father's work. He had so thoroughly absorbed his father's style that it was often difficult to tell them apart. Peter Bruegel the Elder would launch an artistic dynasty with both of these sons and would go on to influence generations of Dutch and Flemish artists. Join me next time as we explore the life and the work of Albrecht Dürer. This is the Renaissance Podcast, and I'm your host, Dennis Bird. Thank you for listening.